0: We knew the flares were coming almost a week before they did. Telemetry from the solar orbiter had given us ample warning that a gigantic coronal mass ejection was imminent. Left unchecked, the result would have had devastating consequences to all electrical equipment in the northern hemisphere damage that could take upwards of a decade to repair. Powerless to stop the flares, the government decided to be proactive and enact what they called the shutdown protocol. It was a mass mandatory shutdown of all electrical grids for a period of 72 hours during the peak of the solar storm. It was the only hope of protecting our electrical infrastructure. At first, it wasn't so bad. Basic supplies like water and MREs were dropped at every household in the hopes of discouraging looting. Communities band together, handing out blankets and holding communal cookouts on gas grills. We were as ready as we could be. It was beautiful that first night, when the sky was clear for the first time since the Industrial Revolution. Unobscured by light pollution, we could see the Milky Way hanging overhead like a streamer running through the sky. There were more stars than we could count, filling our minds with wonder and amazement. It was magical. And then, the screaming began. That first night, most incidents were reported in towns bordering national parks. People were dragged out of their homes by gnarled, shadowy creatures. Things that normally hide in the woods and caverns, and only grab you when you encroach on their territory. They were no longer kept at bay by their instinctual fear of light and electricity. By the second night, they spread to larger cities. By the third, we had become a buffet.
1: be helpful to power off for a little while, but if you do, just make sure you know how to protect yourself. That's what we learned from author Manon Lysette from the tale which was this episode's cold open, The Shutdown Protocol, performed by Wafia White. With this being the last episode of Season 18 before next week's season finale, I want to take a moment to thank you for being part of our tribute to old-time television, It's been fun to journey through the decades with you. A big thanks to Brandon and the production team for creating versions of our theme song in the style of the decades. And a rousing round of applause to Jessica McAvoy and our editorial team for crafting the episodes around the wonderful stories submitted this year. We're looking forward to new adventures in 2023 when Season 19 kicks off. But we're not quite done yet. In fact, our stories are starting. You'd better not leave. Our tales are quite true if you want to believe. In our first tale, we get noisy. Not just any noise, but that soothing white noise that many of us use to relax or fall asleep. But in this tale, shared with us by author Lyndon Schneider, We meet a woman who loves white noise because she can hear music within it. If only she knew where the music was coming from. Performing this tale are Tanya Milozovic, Katabel Ansari, Mary Murphy, and Nicole Doolin. So listen within the noise, but do it soon, before we reach the day the music died.
2: Everyone, my name is Madison, but the only person who calls me that is my little sister when she wants to piss me off. I usually go by Maddie or Mads. I'm 19 years old and trying to get used to returning home after being away this past year for my first year of university. Parents, am I right? The last thing I wrote was a research paper where I had to get to a really high word count, so I apologize if I get wordy. That's not why I'm here, though. I'll get to that. But to understand everything, I think you need to hear this from the beginning. Otherwise, (laughs) I'm just some teenager overreacting and I promise you, this is real. My entire life, I've had a pretty kick-ass, if benign, superpower. When I was tiny, my parents noticed that I was intensely drawn to white noise, especially when they ran my bath or when it rained heavily. I could sit where I could hear it and wordlessly hum along to music only I could hear. They thought it was pretty adorable at first. That was until I started sneaking into the bathroom and turning on the bath water to let it run. That was an expensive water bill. Not knowing what else to do, they put a latch on the bathroom door that I couldn't reach and figured that was that. Except, of course, it wasn't. I don't remember this part, although it has become family lore as only this kind of story can. It gets told regularly at family gatherings as an amusing anecdote, as an example of how precocious I was at such a young age, usually accompanied by a joke about my strong personality. Anyway, when I was around three years old, I was at the grocery store with my mom when an intense thunderstorm swept through our town. The rain was so intense, you could hear it inside the store, over the music, and the sounds of people shopping. I was standing next to my mom one moment, and the next, I was gone. Of course, she freaked out, started calling my name, looking for me everywhere. Concerned shoppers and employees began to look for me, until somebody told my mom that they thought they saw this kid outside the store. Why they just walked by me, I'll never know. My mom found me humming and dancing outside the store's doors as the rain crashed down in sheets across the parking lot, perfectly happy in my musical little world. If it hasn't quite become clear, I hear music in white noise. As I've gotten older, I've learned much more about my superpower. It's not all white noise. The clearest, loudest signal I get is when I'm around white noise coming from a natural source. Think rain, waterfalls, that kind of thing. Household noises like water running, I get a much fainter signal. But enough to be aware of and enjoy the music. An extra perk is I've never had to put music on while I'm showering. Completely artificial white noise, I get nothing from. So white noise machines, televisions, or radio static are just white noise. I don't have any control over what music I hear and... I don't hear it clearly, mostly just the melody. If there's somebody singing, I can tell that they are there, but not what they're saying. It wasn't until I was 10 years old that I kept it primarily to myself. My family kind of knew, but we had never explicitly discussed it. My family is pretty artsy, with my mom teaching piano and violin, and my dad being a high school art teacher. So it's no surprise that with the music around me all the time from different sources, I was a pretty musical kid myself. I was in grade five when the incident happened. The incident shaped my life through middle school and to some extent, high school as well. Although by then, it had mainly become an urban legend. Although I went to a public school, the community itself was very religious and most social events that happened outside of school usually revolved around the church. We were already on the outs with most of our neighbors as we didn't regularly attend church, only attending around holidays or significant events like the summer jubilee. And that was so we could pitch in to help, not for religious reasons. But I digress. Let's get to the incident. It was mid-October and unseasonably hot The beginning of October had been cool and rainy, and the leaves were blowing off the trees and sticking to things. But now, the sun shone, and the dry leaves collected in low-lying areas, perfect for us kids to run through, kicking them up and laughing like maniacs. We all hoped it would stay this warm for Halloween, so we wouldn't have to wear long pants and jackets under our costumes. Spoiler alert, it did not, and we did. I sat at the top of the playground watching the younger kids run around. I was in grade five, the oldest grade in the school, and consider myself above such childish antics. I hummed a song to myself, something I'd heard in the shower and wasn't 100% sure I liked, but it was stuck in my head. Another girl from my class, Emily, climbed up beside me. Emily wasn't the most popular girl in grade five but she wanted to be. She tried very hard to be cool, convincing her parents to buy her clothes and shoes that the cool kids wore, which only caused them to ridicule and ostracize her more, accusing her of being a poser. One day, near the beginning of the school year, Emily had worn makeup, which did not go over well, with the kids she so badly wanted to befriend. She had washed it off before first recess, blaming her red-rimmed, puffy eyes on rubbing them too hard when she was washing her makeup off. I felt terrible for her. and We were kind of friends, maybe more like frenemies. What's that song? I heard you humming it earlier, too. I shrugged at her. I don't know. She looked at me, brow furrowed. What do you mean you don't know? Did you make it up? No! I hesitated. I didn't want her to ask more questions. The little voice in my head told me that Emily was not someone I should be telling my secrets to. She was definitely not Gaian in chair material. So where did you hear it? It's weird. Her lip was curling up into a slight sneer. I knew I had to do something. Or I would become a target. I don't know. Honestly, Emily... But how about I teach it to you? It was the only thing I could come up with. I had been around my mom teaching music enough to know how to help her learn the notes. She was a pretty good singer. We spent the rest of the recess practicing and then humming the song together or using nonsensical sounds in place of words. It was fun, and Emily was being friendly. The bell rang, and we went inside, and I forgot all about teaching Emily the song. Lunchtime came and I was accosted by girls who wanted me to teach them the song. I was absolutely flabbergasted. I did not want this attention, especially regarding my music. It had always been my thing, my little escape. Now it felt like everyone wanted a piece of something that felt private, but what could I do? If you've ever been a preteen girl, you know that in a situation, you either go along with everyone or become the new number one person to hate. I told myself that it was just one song. What could it hurt? And so, over the next couple of days, I taught pretty much all of the grade five girls and even a couple of boys this song. Everyone was humming it, dancing around. Kids that age can create a unique kind of hysteria over the strangest things. Anyway... It started to feel nice with all the attention. Kids who never even knew my name wanted to sit beside me. Friends constantly surrounded me. I started listening to the music I heard for the next song I could teach my new friends. The following week, I got invited to my first ever sleepover. Emily had been riding the wave of popularity with me because she had been the first person to learn the song. So she invited me and several of the popular girls over. Being so close to Halloween, we were going to watch scary movies and gorge ourselves on junk food. Emily hinted it would be extra cool if I had a new song to teach them. I was so excited. I didn't even care we were going to watch scary movies, which was something I'd never really done. I had no idea how I would react, but I didn't care. I packed my bag with my happy bunny pajamas, fresh from a trip to Hot Topic, and my sleeping bag, and was all set. I didn't notice then, but my parents were a little worried. It was my first sleepover, after all. My little sister was jealous and excited, practically running circles around me. This was going to be the best night ever. My mom dropped me off at 5.30 p.m. at Emily's house. I was the first one there. My mom walked me to the door so that she could introduce herself to Emily's parents. I was so embarrassed that I just waved quickly at her and scampered off with Emily so she could show me the rec room in the basement where we'd be sleeping. I couldn't help but notice the multiple crosses and cross stitches with Bible quotes throughout the house. Emily's family was very religious. And it showed. But downstairs, the rec room was huge with a big TV and DVD player that also played Blu-ray. This was going to be epic. I know, all this buildup, I bet you're just waiting for my bubble to burst. Well, burst it did with a sense of anger and self-righteousness that only the devout can muster. Emily was telling me about the movies we were going to watch. I could feel the apprehension growing, but I kept telling myself I would be okay. The phone rang upstairs, and we could hear the muffled voice of Emily's mom. She didn't sound happy at all. Then she called Emily upstairs. Be right back. Emily scampered up the stairs. I sat there in silence, trying not to eavesdrop. There was nothing really for me to do other than look around the room at the couch, TV unit, and computer desk. I could hear Emily whine, but I couldn't understand what she was saying. Her mother sounded angry. Then it went quiet. A few minutes later, Emily came downstairs, looking pale. She plopped down beside me. Nobody else is coming. She wouldn't look at me. I was stunned. Was this all a setup to make us feel bad? Were the cool kids playing a mean joke? What happened? She looked at me from behind her bangs, eyes wide. Maddie, where did you hear that song? My heart dropped. I suddenly realized that the failed slumber party was somehow my fault. I swallowed hard. Why? Kelly's mom called my mom. She said that. That the song you taught us is a song she heard on the radio. But... She hesitated, her breaths coming quickly as she told me that the outside world had discovered my secret. She said that... There's no way that you could have known that song
3: last week. She said that... She said that it was only released on the 23rd. You taught us before that, on the 16th.
2: Maddie, that's six whole days before it was released. How? How did you know a song that well before it came out? I realized now that her behavior wasn't because she was upset. She was afraid. She was scared of me. I stared at her. I didn't know how to respond. I thought about lying and saying something about a relative in the music industry. But I didn't feel right lying. And besides, I knew the truth would come out eventually. But I didn't want to tell her, so I stayed silent. You're a freak. It was like a slap to the face. I recoiled, looking at Emily in shock. Still, a part of me searched her face, hoping to see a trace of humor, hoping that it was all just a terrible joke, that the other girls were coming and we would just laugh this off. Get out of my house. My mom called yours. She's coming to get you. You can wait outside. I fought the tears as I packed up my sleeping bag in silence. I would not cry in front of Emily. I knew that as soon as I left, she would be on the phone telling everyone what a freak I was. And if I cried, it would just be that much worse. As soon as I was done, I trudged up the stairs. Emily's mom stood at the top of the stairs, cross clutched in her hand.
4: Cursed child, Satan spawn.
2: I went to their front door as quickly as possible. I got my shoes on, and the second I was out the door, Emily's mom slammed it behind me. I could hear the deadbolt slide into place, and the chain too, for good measure. I had no idea what to do. This was my first real experience with rejection, and it was genuinely bitter. I was heartbroken and terrified. My mom pulled up, and I forced myself to walk to the car incredibly aware that there were at least two sets of eyes burning holes into the back of my head. I slipped into the passenger seat, and as soon as we were out of the driveway, I burst into tears. I was so confused, so afraid, so alone. See, the thing was, at that point, I hadn't admitted to myself the true nature of my gift. The music I heard was sometimes music that hadn't been released yet, Well, more than sometimes. And I wasn't hearing just music. Sometimes there were voices between the music. Sometimes it was even just voices. The odd time it was a voice speaking in a bizarre rhythm. I was hearing radio broadcasts from the future. And now everyone knew to some extent could never make out what anyone was saying, but there it was. I was a freak. No doubt about it. As a ten-year-old girl, I was crushed. When I got home, my dad gave me one of his giant bear hugs, and I lost it. I sobbed, my entire body shaking, snot and tears smearing his shirt, and he just held me. I felt relieved. That I could admit what I was, that it wasn't a self imposed secret anymore. And I felt guilty for being relieved. I felt guilty that I hadn't been open with my family about it, but I hadn't been honest with myself either. I was ashamed of who I was. I knew what I'd lost socially. I'd yet to realize that the repercussions would affect more than just me, that my entire family would be targeted ostracized, bullied, and excluded. To my parents' credit, they didn't push me. I knew they were there to talk to as I hid away in my room that weekend. I came out for meals, shoveling food into my mouth as quickly as possible, and then slinking back to my room. After lunch on Sunday, there was a quiet knock on my door. I didn't open it, but I didn't stop it from opening either, I expected my mom or dad to be standing there, coming to tell me that two days was enough and that I needed to pull myself together. Instead, my little sister Lily slowly opened the door and peeked in. She was seven at the time, but wise beyond her years. Her superpower is being empathetic and kind to an immeasurable degree. Matt, can I come in? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was secretly glad for the company. I... I brought you something. I hope that's okay. She held out a piece of paper. I took it. And tears welled in my eyes. It was a picture Lily had drawn of the two of us. A bright yellow sun shone on our smiling faces as we held hands. Multicolored flowers surrounding us. In her best seven-year-old printing, she had written... I love you, Maddie. With a big, red heart. When she saw the tears, she looked so alarmed, she scampered over to where I was lying on the bed. Oh, no, Maddie. I drew it to make you feel better. Don't cry. You did cheer me up, little bug. A lot. I love you, too. Her small, sweet face broke into a smile, and I could feel some of the sadness fading away a small smile playing at the corners of my mouth. Is your art stuff still out? Mm Mm-hmm. I sighed. Two days was quite enough. Want to go draw together? Lily's already big eyes grew huge and hopeful. She smiled and nodded with such enthusiasm that she almost fell over. I slid off my bed, and we went downstairs together. After that... Things were rough for my entire family. We were no longer welcome at the church unless my parents agreed to send me away to a camp that helped me get the demon out. My parents were dead set against that. Luckily, my dad taught in the high school in the next town over, but my mom's students all canceled. We got glares and even sometimes called names when we were out shopping. Lily was teased in class. It was a giant, awful mess. And it was all my fault. I felt awful. Shortly after the incident, we had a family meeting. We discussed what was going on and how we were being treated. We talked about moving, but ultimately decided to table the decision for a few months to see if things would calm down. But the more critical part of that meeting was me finally talking to my family about my superpower. I call it my superpower now, thanks to my parents and Lily, as they were the ones who started calling it that right away. At first, it made me feel silly, but eventually I grew to think of my ability that way. They listened to me and didn't judge me or force me to tell them anything I wasn't comfortable with. They didn't call me a liar or question anything I said. This conversation set the stage and made it so much easier when I came out later in my teens. But that's a story for another time. Since then, I figured out some nuances of what I hear. There are the usual music stations where they play a few songs and then somebody talks for a bit. Occasionally, there are commercials. There are news channels, the kind that has traffic and weather on the ones and has a pretty consistent cycle of news. There's talk radio, which has its own calming rhythm of how people speak. And then there's the one that took me forever to identify, number stations. I don't get them often, but when I do, I always feel weird and creeped out. It seems like I get radio broadcasts from all over the world and each language has its own rhythm and cadence. I don't have any control over what I hear, but when it's something I don't like, number stations, country music, I can usually reset by getting away from the white noise for 10 minutes or so, and then going back. So it all sounds hunky-dory, happily ever after, right? Well, it was up until about a week ago, and that's why I'm here. About a week ago, the radio stations I heard started to have much more talking, and barely any music. The voices, at first, were serious, measured, and constant. The rhythm felt like they were giving instructions. This was happening across the board, in several different languages. The only thing that seemed unaffected were the number stations. I was hearing many more broadcasts because I was worried, so I ran water a lot more often just to check. A day or so later, the voices changed. Filled with a feeling of deep sorrow, I could hear even though I couldn't hear the words. Some stations had just gone to playing music with nobody talking at all. At this point, I was checking things even more regularly because it was all just so weird. It was clear something terrible was happening. I wasn't prepared for what came next. Soon, every station played what sounded like an emergency broadcast on repeat. I tried so hard to hear the words, straining and pushing myself to exhaustion, but it felt like the harder I listened, the further away and more muffled the words became. These excruciating broadcasts became the norm for two days straight. Now, there's nothing. Silence. I've checked in and what feels like a million times. I've tried different sources of white noise. My whole life has been consumed by trying to find something, anything to indicate that there is some radio broadcast out there somewhere. Lily has been helping, trying to think of new sources or driving with me to different waterfalls in our area, but I haven't heard a single thing. There was never any exact time frame for when I heard a song the first time to when it came out. That's another thing Lily's been helping me with. We have tried to pin down a timeline from when I first hear a song to when it comes out, We've spent hours trying to remember details, and my parents have pitched in where they can. We have figured that a lot of it is odds. As in, what are the odds that a new song is playing while I happen to be near a waterfall? Or taking a shower? Sometimes it's days. Sometimes it's months. Between when I hear it in the white noise and when it gets released, we've concluded that there is no way of knowing, but we figured out that the longest I remember is three months. Still, all I hear is white noise. I think I heard the end of the world and there's no way to tell when it's going to happen. Just that it's coming. So hug your loved ones and prepare yourself because whatever it is, it's looming. I'm so sorry.
1: This time of year, depending on where you live, you might hear music outside your door. Singers caroling the songs of Christmas cheer. But in this tale, shared with us by author Jacob Damore, we meet a man who hears singers near his house, but it's not Christmas time, and the singers are getting closer. Performing this tale is Peter Lewis. So enjoy the festive carols if you hear them. Just pray you don't hear a psalm in the night.
5: I've always found a sense of tranquility in the soundscape of my suburban neighborhood after dark. The busy noise of the day dies down, leaving naught but a bed of chirping crickets and the whirl of a crisp wind brushing through the leaves of the trees. Even the hum of traffic passing by my bedroom window brings a comforting rhythm as I lie in bed, awaiting sleep. My bedroom rests at the front of my single-story house, bordering a large window that looks onto the street. It's not what most would consider the ideal location for a bedroom, but I'm not exactly spoiled for choice. There are only a handful of rooms throughout the whole house, and when I moved in, my options were the room I'm in now, or the small windowless alcove across the hall that barely fits my work desk, never mind trying to shove a queen-sized mattress in there. Needless to say, the first thing I did when I moved in was buy a nice set of heavy blackout curtains for my bedroom window, which I keep drawn around the clock. My bedroom is my private sanctuary, I'm not fond of the feeling that a nosy neighbor may be peering in at me from afar. Even so, sometimes, as I lay in bed, I can't shake the feeling that there's someone standing on the other side of those curtains, that if I were to pull them back, I would be met with a pair of watchful eyes beaming down on me. Most of the time, when this feeling crops up, I'm able to shake it away as an irrational thought. Recently, however, things have changed, and I've begun to wonder just how irrational those thoughts really were. I'm no longer certain of when it all began, but if I had to pinpoint a specific moment, it would be four weeks ago, the first time I heard their song. It was around quarter to ten. I had resigned myself to bed over an hour before as I had an early morning the next day, yet sleep eluded me. As I lay restless in bed, I started to get that creeping feeling again that there was something outside my window. As usual, I shook it off, thinking it was just my brain playing a cruel trick on me, knowing full well that I needed a good night's rest. But then I heard it. Out in the street, someone was singing, and not just someone, a whole group. Difficult to tell without seeing them, but there seemed to be at least half a dozen different voices, I couldn't make out what they were singing. The song sounded like gospel, but the lyrics were in a language I couldn't comprehend. It didn't sound like any language I was familiar with. Looking back now, it's strange. I don't remember feeling scared at all that night. Perhaps it was due to my confusion. My attempts to rationalize why these people would be out singing so late at night distracted me from fear. I remember thinking that it was probably a group of drunk college kids messing around. After all, I live in a college town and not too far from the campus, so it seemed plausible. They likely got a bit lost on their way back to the dorms after a night out and lacked the inhibition not to bother my neighbors and I as we tried to sleep. I rolled over, placing my back towards the window and trying in vain to ignore the noise outside. It would be over soon, I told myself. Perhaps even someone with less patience and more confidence than I would go outside and yell at them to knock it off. (sighs) No such luck. I continued to listen to the strange song, tracking the voices as they combed up and down the street. It felt longer, but after ten minutes or so the street finally fell back into silence. I found comfort once again in my familiar soundscape of cricket chirps and eventually drifted off into sleep. It wasn't until a few days later that I finally managed to bring up the strange event with one of my neighbors. Mrs. Everly was a twig of a woman. The top of her head only rose to my chest, and in her old age she was hardly anything but skin and bones. I happened to run into her doing some yard work as I returned from my evening jog. After a bit of friendly small talk, I finally asked her about the singing the other night. She pursed her lips and her brow furled as she tried to determine what I was talking about. I clarified, even though I didn't think it was necessary, how often does a group of carolers show up at night in the middle of spring? But even as I explained further, it was clear Mrs. Everly had no clue what I was talking about. She must have been asleep already, we reasoned, and left it at that. After our conversation, I was ready to let the whole thing fade from my memory, let it go as a strange one-time occurrence, one of those memories that pops back into your head every few years as a funny, unsolved little mystery. Except, as it turned out, it was not a one-time occurrence. Two nights after my conversation with Mrs. Everly, I woke up in the dead of night, my throat dry and in need of a drink. I noted the time on the digital clock that rested on my nightstand. Only 11.15, just a couple of hours since I had gone to bed. As I reached for the glass of water I kept beside the clock, I heard it again. That same song. Were there more voices this time? My hand hovered over the cup, frozen in place as I listened to the song. I could hear it more clearly this time, but that didn't help me understand it any better. The unfamiliar language in which they sang grated against my ears. Whatever it was, it was an ugly language, filled with harsh, grinding consonants and eerily stretched vowels. This time I wasn't content just to roll over and ignore it, I wanted to see who was out there. I reached for the curtain and took hold of the corner, I would just pull back the slightest amount just enough to see outside without drawing any attention to myself. I couldn't shake this feeling that whoever was out there, I did not want them to see me. I inched the curtain back, peering out into the night. My suburban street didn't come equipped with street lamps, but the moon was bright that night. Once my eyes adjusted, I could see clearly to the other side of the road. There they were, a group of eight people walking up and down the street, singing their bizarre chant. From their voices i could tell that there was a mix of men and women but i couldn't tell how many of which nor could i gauge how old they were they were covered head to toe in blue robes which made them difficult to spot in the dark and they wore wide-brimmed pointed hats that looked like they were pulled from a witch's costume straight out of a spirit halloween store only they had long veils hanging from the brim which fell far past their shoulders I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was like a cult was passing through my neighborhood. Just when I decided I had seen enough, one of the singers turned and looked straight at my bedroom window. I told myself there was no way he could have seen me. My room was completely dark and I had barely made a crack in the curtain. But then, the rest of them turned and looked my way. I could feel their stares burning into me. I let go of the curtain and ran for the front door, making sure it was locked. I did the same with every door and window in the house before I found my phone and dialed 911. In those brief moments that I was waiting for the call to go through, I noticed a sudden absence of sound. The singing had stopped. The chirping of the crickets had returned. As expected, the police were no help. With there being no trace of the cloaked figures in the street by the time they arrived, there was little they could do aside from file or report. The flashing blue lights of the squad car that sat outside my house as I answered the dispatched officer's questions did seem to draw the attention of some of my neighbors, though as I would learn later not a single one of them had awakened the singing. After the officer had finally left I returned to bed for the night even though I knew there wouldn't be any sleep to be had. Every time I felt my eyes begin to grow heavy and drowsiness start to overtake me, my mind pulsed with the sensation that there was something just beyond my curtains. I never checked. I no longer wanted to find out if the sensation was irrational or not. I opted instead to lay still, anxiously waiting for the sun to rise. I took the following day off from work. I would have been too exhausted, too distracted to get any real work done anyway. I spent most of the day napping on the sofa and catching up on chores around the house. As I was stacking a load of clean dishes in my cabinets, I realized that the song from last night had begun to echo inside my head. Not like an earworm, but like a seed that had been planted and was slowly coming to bloom. I froze, nearly dropping the plate I had pulled from the dishwasher. I tried to clear my mind, but the song was pervasive. I could feel it stretching into every corner of my mind as if it were a parasite, siphoning away all other thoughts until it was all that remained. Before it could overtake me completely, I did the only thing I could think to do. I ran into the living room and found my earbuds, plunging them into my ears and cranking the music on my phone up to a volume that would have been painful in any other circumstance, but now brought only relief as the unwanted song faded from my head. I caught the breath I hadn't realized I'd been holding when I pulled the earbuds out and met with the silence in my head. The song was gone, but a creeping sense of dread told me that it would be back. I wondered how long I had until then and what would happen when it did return. As sundown approached I could feel my stomach growing cold. I wanted to cling on to those last precious rays of light like a child to his mother. But soon the last of the day's light faded away, and I was left with the familiar sounds of the night. It wasn't until nearly one o'clock in the morning that I relented and retired to my bedroom. I considered that I might be safe for the night. Both times the singers had woken me had been before midnight. Perhaps the threat of police intervention had actually managed to scare them off. As I apprehensively tucked myself into bed, I fixed my eyes on the curtains beside me, praying that no one would come, that I would have a quiet, restful night. My prayers went unanswered. I awoke to the song only an hour later, every muscle in my body tensed as soon as I heard it. For a moment I had to wonder if it had simply crept its way back into my head, but no, I could hear it emanating from outside, from the street. I couldn't bring myself to touch the curtains this time. I didn't want the singers to catch me spying on them again, so I laid still, hoping they would simply go away like they had the first night. As I waited, I listened intently. There was something different this time. Normally I could hear their voices rise and fade as they paraded up and down the street, but this time their volume was static. They were standing completely still as they sung. From the way it sounded, I guessed they were located on the sidewalk just at the end of my driveway. Why? Why were they so focused on me? I felt a sudden urge to peel back the curtain, curiosity tugging at my arm. Fear held me back. Suddenly, I realized the voices had drawn closer. They were approaching my house. The police. I reached for my phone, scrambling to find it in the dark. When I finally did, I pressed the power button only to be greeted with a screen instructing me to charge my phone. It was dead. I had used up more battery than normal trying to keep myself awake, and in my drowsiness I'd forgotten to plug it in when I went to bed. Isolation crept over me as I realized there was no one to turn to. The song was getting louder, the singers coming closer to the window. I could feel it in my head again, too, weaving itself throughout my mind. I was backed into a corner. My animal instincts were screaming at me, fight or flight. Reason told me to run, but there was something else there telling me otherwise, and its voice was louder. I took hold of the curtains and threw them open. A chill coursed through my body as I stared at the sight just beyond the thin glass of my window. The singers were right there, any closer and they would have been pressed up against the glass. At first I couldn't make out any of their features through their veils, but as I focused harder I began to see. Their skin was red and crusted like land in a drought, strands of skin had begun to peel away around the creases on their faces. They were hairless, down to even their eyelashes, but their eyes, they were the most inhuman trait of all. There was no white in them. Instead, they were encompassed by black tissue like smoldering coals. They continued to sing their twisted chorus with mouths so dry I wondered how they possibly could, and as they did, I could feel the song burrowing deeper into me. As its words reached the deepest depths of my mind, I suddenly realized that I could understand them. Those words which had previously eluded me now resonated deep within my mind, and I realized that their song was beautiful. Their song told a story, but not of the past. They sang of days to come, days when the night will leave us and there will only be day. The sun, then, will take its rightful place as God. The clouds will vanish and its rays will shine down on us with renewed intensity. Those who refuse to accept our new savior will be judged, enveloped by a tornado of heat, burned away a layer at a time until all that remains is ash. With the clouds gone there will be no rain. The plants will die as the earth dries up and we who remain will be left in a haze of dust that cuts away at the skin when the wind blows. Life on this planet will be hell, but for those that can endure the suffering, that can prove themselves worthy, it will be brief. When the time comes, the fires of the sun will stretch down to the earth in slithering tendril form. One by one, those of us that remain will be wrapped in its embrace and pulled away from this dying planet. It is nothing to fear. We are simply being chosen. We will become part of the sun, fueling it as it grows to consume more and more of our solar system. In a way, we will live on in its flaming belly as it swallows worlds. (sighs) I snapped out of my trance and I realized the singing had stopped. The cloaked figures outside my window were gone. I looked out into the street. The night was peaceful. The crickets were chirping. A strange sense of longing seeped into my heart and I realized there were tears streaming down my cheeks. Their song had granted me such a wondrous vision, and without it I was starved for more. I wanted them to come back, to sing to me once again, but then I realized that the song was not gone. I could still hear it lingering in the recesses of my mind, playing on a loop. I breathed a sigh of relief as a smile slithered its way onto my face. I lay back against the pillow, closing my eyes and letting the sweet lullaby guide me into sleep. I wondered how long it would be until the future the song foretold would come to fruition. It's been about a month since then. The singers haven't come back since that night. That's okay. I don't need them to come back. The song hasn't left me. In fact, it's getting louder. I think that means that the sun's awakening is drawing nearer. The days are getting longer, and when I look up at the sky, I swear I can see the sun's rays beginning to stretch like tendrils, the way they wave in the air. It's almost like they're dancing to the song inside my head.
1: For many years now, we've had astronomers searching the cosmos for signs of life. That includes listening for signals from distant galaxies. And in this tale, shared with us by author Olivier Zangao, we learn of an observatory which has picked up some strange signals from the darkness of space. Performing this tale are David Alt and Jesse Cornett. So understand this. Sometimes it's better to remain in the dark, that way you'll avoid hearing the final broadcast.
6: The notion of life other than ours somewhere in the vast expanse of the universe has been pondered on for centuries. Surely we can't be the only life forms or be unique in possessing the abilities of rational and intelligent thought. Somewhere out there, there must be another form of existence. Right? You might be familiar with the Voyager Golden Records. Back in 1977, when they launched the Voyager spacecraft, they included two phonograph records containing sounds and images selected to portray the diversity of life and culture on Earth. Until now, nothing has come of that. But that doesn't mean we haven't been trying to make contact anymore. Since then, we've sent countless radio and other types of signals into the depths of space, hoping, maybe one day, for a reply. The signals were received on May 23, 2025 at the Keck Observatory based on the Hawaiian Islands. John had been stationed there for a while now and wasn't startled when he noticed unfamiliar radio wave signals being received by a few of the radio telescopes. Now, it's nothing new to receive an unknown signal. Radio waves are created constantly by objects whose magnetic fields can change. For example, a solar flare being casted off the sun. After checking the directions that the signals had come from, he noticed their source wasn't anywhere near the sun. They had originated from somewhere about the region of our neighboring galaxy, Andromeda. John let his boss know that they had received two unidentified signals, and after a short discussion, was told to analyze and find out what they were. They figured it could be a new star forming, or even one exploding. That seemed the likeliest of possibilities, as they had registered some change in the electromagnetic field in that direction in the last couple of months. The data that came out of the analysis, however, made absolutely no sense at all. No signal they had ever received had ever looked like that before. The characteristic patterns to expect from dying stars or other bodies just weren't there. John didn't think too much into it and was more excited at maybe discovering something unknown to mankind. He decided not to tell his boss right away and had just gotten another idea. It's still a slow process, but over the years we've been able to develop software that takes various signals, radio, infrared or similar, and turns them into audio that humans can hear. You could say it's a way for us to hear the infinite symphony that is our universe. John put his headset on and got to work. The signals which were captured were short, but he was sure it would work. Not thinking too much about it, he fed it into the software and waited with eagerness on the results. It took some time, but when the audio file from the first signal was ready, he queued it up and pressed play. His heart nearly stopped. He had expected absolutely everything else than what he had just heard. It couldn't be possible, no, no, there was no way. There had to have been a mistake in the program. His heart pounding so hard he thought he would pass out from it, John got the original file and fed it to the program again. There was no mistake. The result was the exact same the second time. It wasn't from here, not our world. That he knew instinctively. The voice repeated the same words again.
7: This is our final broadcast. It's too late for us. We did what we
6: could. They... He shakily opened the audio file from the second signal, which was now also done processing, closed his eyes as if to brace himself for the impact he knew must be coming, and let it play. John stood slowly from his chair and laid his headset gently on his desk. He walked across the room quietly, keeping his head sunk and not looking at anyone. He stepped outside to the small patio where the perfect sunny day was slowly fading to night. The second audio file had only been six words to finish the first message. I have found you. They are coming. John looked across the ocean. Just above the darkening horizon, a large cluster of new, never-before-seen lights slowly came into view.
1: We've heard a lot of doom and gloom lately. Bad news, pessimism, hopelessness. But in this tale, shared with us by author Mara, we meet the residents of a small town who may have been given hope. Hope from a strange prophet who wants to lead the people to a much better place. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers and Jesse Cornett. So don't despair. There is hope out there. You might find it in a place called Godsund.
8: There was a man telling people that there is a new country he's leading them to, but it doesn't exist. It sounds absurd. We're a small town in the middle of nowhere. I could understand maybe a nearby city or even a neighboring country, but the place he's talking about doesn't even exist. I don't even know why everyone is believing him. But I'm getting ahead of myself. It all started about six months ago, when things were better. I live in a simple, small town. A religious place, but nothing extraordinarily crazy. Yeah, we have more churches than restaurants, but... Other than the Sunday swarms of cars and church parking lots and lots of I Love Jesus bumper stickers, it isn't a place that's overly swarmed with religion. You could have a friendly conversation with one another, meet each other at the local buffet, gossip about small-town life, and be cordial with one another. In other words, faith is just a matter of one's personal business. And talk about it doesn't go any further than a hammering neighbor shouting God damn it!" after he smashed his finger instead of a nail. Things got a bit more unstable when he showed up, though. He was in the middle of the town square on Sunday morning when church was in session. He was wrapped in cloth that clung to his skin so tightly you'd think he had some sort of horrible skin condition rather than seeing them as clothes. He didn't really move, either. He stood in the same spot, with his head tilted up towards the sun and both of his hands cupped forward, like he was expecting rainwater to fill them up. His long, greasy brown hair was bound in messy braids that hung down below his shoulders. He was clearly mouthing something in wide, exaggerated gestures, like he was putting on a stage play, and he really wanted the audience to be sure he was speaking. But what was strange about it is that no actual sound came out. Or if it did, it was extremely quiet. Eventually, as the church congregants were let loose back into the world, this babbling man began attracting a crowd. Normally, every middle-aged couple and suburban family would crowd into the diners and movie theaters on a Sunday afternoon, but for some strange reason, they seemed more focused on this street performer than just going on about their day. I don't go to church. I like to keep my beliefs to myself, and the last thing I want to do is sit around for hours and listen to some guy say how great Jesus is. So, as peculiar as this site was, I wasn't going to hang around for what seemed to be another sort of sermon. Later that night, I figured I'd stop by the town square for some soda and some snacks. Normally, it's dead quiet on a Sunday night, save for the three stores that stay open past 7pm. But something was different that night. It was filled with people eyeing the crowd, it seemed to be the exact same group that was there earlier, except even more people joined in. And of course, in the focus of everyone's attention was the babbling man. Although he seemed different. His previously tight clothing had begun to unfurl into draping sheets. His greasy, tied hair looked freshly rejuvenated and sat on his shoulders. He still mouthed something, but... Instead of a wild man exaggerating his mouth, he was composed and calm. The only thing that stayed the same were his hands, still cupped forwards. I thought, screw it. If practically the entire town was interested in whatever the hell was going on, I might as well check it out. This weirdo must have something about him that I judged too early. The closer I moved towards the crowd, the more everything felt lighter quieter, calmer. Each step was like moving into a basking warmth that grew ever more tranquil the further I moved forward. There was no sound, save for a whisper. Greetings, my child. Who was that? Why was this the only sound I could hear?
7: Come help me usher in a new era of peace. Let us create a new Eden for ourselves. We can all move together to a new plane of existence. A new
8: country, a new home. Godson. What the hell? Was it the man who spoke? I looked up to his face, and despite his mouth moving, it didn't match to the words that spoke to me.
7: Come, join our covenant. Let us be as one, and migrate to our new home.
8: Despite my feelings of elation, my mind screamed at me to turn around and run. It might have felt like immense pleasure, but my anxieties cracked any feeling of happiness. It began to feel hotter. It was no longer a loving warmth, it was suffocating. I couldn't breathe.
7: We will make a new home. All of us in God's.
8: The voice was interrupted as soon as I stepped out of the crowd. I looked back, and every single person in the crowd wasn't making a sound. The babbling man continued mouthing words, and the audience looked forward, smiling gleefully and applauding. Their hands clapped together, but no sound came from them. And then the sound returned all at once like a cup being lifted from a speaker. The crowd started cheering and clapping and began to disperse from the square. They spoke to one another about how life-changing the so-called sermon was. How this event was the most heartfelt and amazing thing they'd ever witnessed. There were young couples, children, families, and elderly. Every type of person could be found at this gathering. What seemed to tie everyone together, though, was that they were all churchgoers. I hung around and waited for everyone to leave. I wanted to see this babbling man up close and find out what his deal was. How did he make me feel like that? It sure as hell wasn't the words he was speaking. It was some sort of aura that I couldn't explain. I needed to know how he did it. The issue was, as soon as everyone else had left, he wasn't there. I ran to the center of the square where he previously stood. The only evidence anyone was there at all were what seemed to be two burnt silhouettes of feet. This occurrence happened weekly, every Sunday. The babbling man stood in the center of the town square, greasy, tied hair tightly wrapped in cloth, hardly anyone around. But then, as soon as church was let out, a large crowd formed. The entire mood shifted and his form changed from a crazed man to a glowing prophet. His hair unfurled onto his shoulders into luscious locks and the tight cloth became a beautiful flowing robe. All the noise was absorbed, and the square became quiet until the sermon was done, and then everyone left, again and again. This silent sermon became more and more frequent. It no longer happened only on Sundays and gained popularity after church. It happened daily. His crowds absorbed half the town. No one went to church anymore. This was the new place of worship before, when the sermons were less common, crowd-goers would just say vague statements about how they felt. It was usually just how they felt physically and spiritually. How happy they felt. However, when the crowds got larger and the sermons became more frequent, the discourse throughout the town became more ominous. Religious conversation became more frequent. Previously, it was something people kept private, but now... It was something that everyone needed to speak about nearly every moment of every day daily life became dismal it was like everyone felt the simple act of living was exhausting our town was nothing more than a black hole absorbing hopes and dreams and vitality the only solution was to get out get out and move to godsend that place the babbling man spoke about to me i kept seeing it more often hearing about it more often. When people began leaving the silent sermons, they began speaking about leaving this wretched existence and moving to this new place. Shops closed up. People stopped going to work. Children stopped going to school. Their parents believed it was unnecessary, as it was only a distraction for what was to come. The windows in the buildings around town were scrawled with messages like, Leaving for godsend, and we no longer need these shells. Some house fires broke out and were left to burn. Even the firefighters abandoned their duties to the town. Possessions were left behind in the blaze, even if pets or people were stuck inside. They no longer mattered if they weren't for the purpose of leaving to Godsend. It seemed nearly everyone in town was invested in this journey. However, there were a few holdouts and those holdouts were outright shunned by everyone else. If they weren't flat out ignored, they were attacked insults or beatings were common if there were non-believers in godsend it wasn't uncommon to find bruised and bloodied bodies strewn about alleyways or in front yards an unusual trait found on these bodies were charred handprints burned into their skin godsend didn't exist there wasn't a town nearby named godsend there wasn't even a godsend avenue nearby and there sure shit wasn't a country nearby with that name But the way these believers spoke about it, it seemed like it was right next door. It was insane. The believers abandoned everything they had, their homes, their churches, their pets, their children. The only thing they needed were the clothes on their back and their faith in their prophet, the babbling man. The last sermon was held on the outskirts of town. It was in the middle of the only road leading out, This was the only new place i'd seen the man i hadn't seen him anywhere else other than the town square i hadn't even seen him physically move he looked as he usually did when there was a large group surrounding him his robe flowed in the wind his mouth moved and his hands were cuffed forward there were hundreds of people this time that might not seem like a lot but for our town that was over half the population everything went as it usually did a silent sermon of people silently cheering and the static man at the front, unmoving save for his lips and the wind blowing his hair and robes. Eventually, the sound returned. But instead of the sermon ending, the man's hands changed. Black sand poured from the cracks in his fingers. Maybe it was ash? But it streamed from his hands and blew away towards the crowd, dusting anyone nearby. The entire audience stared silent. It was clear that they weren't silent due to the sermon's muffling effects. They were stunned at what they were seeing. It was some sort of sign. The sand stopped pouring, and for the first time since he appeared, the babbling man moved his hands down. His lips stopped moving, and the only audible sound was his robe in the wind. Godson awaits. The man walked out of town. His feet were bare and charred. It was the first time I truly noticed. His worshippers followed behind. None of them made any noise save for the shuffling on the pavement. Some had blistered feet and burnt shoes. We've been repairing the town from the vandalism and the arson. It's been weeks since the mass of town people disappeared into the horizon. No one has heard anything from them. Mothers called their children... Sisters tried reaching out to their brothers. The newly orphaned children waited for their parents to return. But we haven't heard anything. They said they were going to Godsend, and I suppose they found it. I'm not sure what was so horrible about our life here, but apparently it was so bad they decided to leave everything behind, all in search for some made-up paradise. There have been reports several miles south of town It appears some sort of fire occurred in one farmer's field. A giant scorch mark scarred a large chunk of the ground, half the size of a football field. Hundreds of charred footprints were impressed into the ground, seemingly leading towards the scorch mark. Further peculiar details were these weird circular grooves pressed into the ground. They almost looked like giant, burnt fingerprints. And I understand now. It wasn't Godsoned. It was God's hand.
1: Back in the day, newspapers were the place to sell used items. The classified ads were always a good source for those strange items for sale. But in this tale, shared with us by author Doug Procknell, a reporter discovers an ad for a disturbing item, one which inspires a hunt for the story behind it. I join Lindsay Russo, Mike Delgadio, Jesse Cornett, Nicole Doolin, Aaron Lillis, Dan Zapula, Ellie Hirschman and Atticus Jackson in performing this tale. So if you're looking for used items in good condition, you might be in luck, especially if you're strange enough to want the baby's coffin.
9: Chris had been a newspaper man for all of his adult life, and most days he loved his job. This was not one of those days. He had just been promoted to editor for the investigative journalist team. This should have been a cause for celebration, but his first job had been to lay off one of his reporters, Mike Dunn. He and Mike had started with the paper at the same time, becoming good friends over the years. Judging from Mike's reaction, he wasn't sure their friendship would survive. Chris sat in his new office, staring at the TVs tuned to various all-news stations. How the hell was he supposed to make a good impression in his new job when he had to fire the reporter he trusted the most? He had the sinking feeling that maybe he wasn't cut out to be in a management position. He hadn't even thought to ask Mike what he was working on. There was a knock at Chris's door. He looked up to see Roger Grimley from the advertising department, He'd been on a nodding acquaintance with Roger for years, but never really spoken to the man.
7: Uh, You got a moment?
9: He stepped into Chris's office without waiting for an answer and sat down.
7: Your predecessor asked me to let him know if we ever ran across something unusual in the way of classified ads. He thought it could lead to an interesting story. Okay...
9: Chris didn't have time to shoot the breeze with Roger about a goddamn classified ad. He needed to find Mike and see if he could repair the damage to their friendship. Besides, he doubted that a classified ad could lead to anything interesting. What had his predecessor been thinking? From the way Roger made himself at home, Chris could see that he wasn't going to be able to get rid of Roger quickly.
7: Uh, This was called in earlier this morning.
9: He pushed a piece of paper across Chris's desk. Chris looked down at the newspaper's standard internal form for classifieds. The text for the ad read, For Sale. Baby's Coffin. Used. It was followed by a phone number.
7: Is this some kind of joke? I thought so too, at first. But I called the number and it seems legit. The woman who answered said she had a baby's coffin for sale. Did you get anything else from her? No, I I didn't press her. I told her we just wanted to confirm the text of the ad. I said somebody else from the paper may call her with some more questions. I, I figured the rest is up to you. Thanks.
10: The problem is that I just had to lay off my best investigative reporter. There may be a story here, but I don't have anyone to put on it.
7: I don't want to do your job for you, but you may want to think about putting one of the interns on this. They're always eager to help.
9: After some small talk, Roger finally left and Chris called the Human Resources Department. HR said they had the perfect candidate, Renee Lilly, a senior at Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism. Chris didn't feel like searching for Renee's cubicle, which was no doubt buried somewhere in the bowels of the old building the Chicago Post-Dispatch called home. He settled on an email, so he could give her the background before they talked.
10: Hi Renee, my name is Chris Morgan, and I'm the new editor for the investigative journalism team here at the CPD. HR tells me that you're interested in work in that area. I have an assignment that should be right up your alley. Let me give you what we know, and we can talk after you've had a chance to review things. This morning, a woman called a new classified ad into the paper. I've attached a copy of our intake form, which gives the text of the ad, etc. You may be familiar with the possibly apocryphal story attributed to Ernest Hemingway about the earliest example of flash fiction. Hemingway bet a group of writers that he could write a sad story in only six words. The group took the bet and paid up without complaint when he wrote, For Sale... Baby shoes, never worn. This new classified ad sounds a lot like Hemingway's story. I want you to do the legwork and find out whether there's more to it. You should begin by talking to the woman who placed the ad. If there's a story here, you and I will work on it together. When you have a chance, why don't you drop by my office and we'll talk about the questions you should ask. I'm on the 10th floor of the building. I look forward to meeting you. Chris.
9: Chris expected to hear from Renee almost immediately, but the afternoon came and went without even a return email. He started to think she may not have been such a good choice. As he was getting ready to leave for the day, he looked out his office window and saw jet black clouds boiling out of the west. On the following day, he was late getting into the office. Yesterday's thunderstorm had continued overnight, culminating in a rush-hour derecho that flattened trees and brought traffic to a stop. Preoccupied with thoughts about the busy day ahead of him, he went straight to his computer and his emails. The first message was from Renee. Dear Mr. Morgan, I didn't see any reason for you and I to meet before I started my investigation, because I knew what questions to ask. I called the number on the intake form, and the woman who answered said her name was Amy Lenhart. She agreed to meet me yesterday afternoon at her store, the Old Town Pawn Shop. She was very nice to me, and we talked for a long time. The pawn shop was started by her husband, and he ran things until he died last week. She wants to close the place and retire, so she's been selling her inventory. Her usual walk-in traffic didn't produce any offers for the baby coffin, which is why she decided on an ad in the paper. She didn't have much information about the coffin because her husband made the loan. They do keep a record of all transactions, and Amy, she asked me to call her Amy, gave me what her husband had recorded for this pawn. I have attached the copy of the record, but I don't think it will be of much use. Amy said she made it a point to call every pawner before selling their collateral. She tried to call the pawner for the coffin, but the line had been disconnected. She didn't have an email or a regular mail address for the guy or a copy of his photo ID, even though it was her husband's usual practice to require one. Likewise, she didn't have a social security number for him. It seems to me that it might be pretty hard to track this guy down. I didn't know what else to do, so I bought the coffin. It wasn't very expensive. I put the coffin on your desk this morning. If you need anything else, just let me know. Rene when he finished reading Renee's note, Chris looked for the coffin. Sure enough, it was on the corner of his desk behind a stack of red welds from another investigation his team was covering. It wasn't very big maybe three feet long and about a foot and a half wide and made from cheap pine, which was why Renee could afford to buy it. He pulled the coffin closer and studied it. The top was cleaner than he expected, certainly cleaner than something that had been buried. Maybe that meant it had been in a crypt. He continued searching the outside and found a tag identifying the manufacturer as the Chicago Casket Company. He wondered whether that information could be coupled with the pawner's name to track down his current whereabouts. He sent a quick email to Renee to that effect and asked her to see him about the follow-up investigation. He spent the rest of the day in meetings about what the downsizing meant for his team. He didn't need an entire day to have this explained. It meant longer hours for everybody with no increase in pay. By the time he got back to his office, it was almost 5 p.m. He expected to find another email from Renee, but there was nothing in his inbox. After the day's meetings, Renee's cavalier attitude toward her job rankled him. He didn't care what else she had going on. She should have answered him. He resolved to find her the next morning and have a long talk, something he was getting very good at. The next morning, he went straight to the HR department. The head of the department was Julie Thayer, whom he recognized from yesterday's meetings, although they hadn't talked.
10: I'm looking for one of our interns, Renee Lilly. Can you tell me where I can find her?
4: Julie frowned. I'm sorry, but we don't have an intern by that name. Now it was Chris's turn to frown.
10: That can't be right. I got a long email from her not two days ago. She's working on a project with me. You know, maybe she's not an intern. Do we have an employee by that name?
4: No, we don't. How did you get her name?
10: I needed an intern for a new project, and when I called your department, the woman who answered gave me Renee's name.
4: Oh, that may explain part of the problem. I had a temp helping me a couple of days ago. Maybe she got confused and gave you the wrong name.
10: Can we talk to the temp? I want to get this straightened out before I head to my office.
4: (laughs) The temp didn't come in today, and I didn't even get a call from her.
10: Well, that's just great.
9: Chris quickly brought Julie up to speed on the assignment he'd given Renee.
10: So, I've got an email from a person who doesn't work here, who somehow left a baby's coffin on my desk. I would really like to find out what the hell's going on here.
4: So would I. Uh, Let me call the temp at home and see what we can find out. Chris waited while she dialed. After a long
9: pause, Julie pulled the phone away from her ear and stared disbelievingly at it.
4: Hmm. The line's been disconnected. Before Chris could say anything, she
9: punched in another number. I've got an idea. She called the agency that had placed the temp, but they didn't have a different number.
10: I think you've done all you could. I'll just have to retrace Renee's steps and see where that leads.
9: More curious than ever, Chris walked to his office. According to his calendar, no more downsizing meetings had been scheduled. So he had some time for research before calling the pawn shop Renee had visited. He learned that the coffin was some kind of hybrid. Although it had the six sides associated with coffins, it had a hinged lid, which was the hallmark of a casket. Unsure of what else Rene had done, he decided to open the coffin to make sure nothing obvious had been overlooked. It opened with a rusty squeak, and Chris was unsurprised to find it completely empty. As he was closing the lid, he glanced at the underside and discovered it was covered with bloody scratches. Stunned, he fell back into his chair. What the hell? some
10: kid been buried alive in this
9: thing he took a deep breath and examined the lid more closely (sighs) okay the blood had not dried too long ago because it was still reddish he lightly ran a finger over the scratches and discovered they were actually deep grooves granted the pine was a soft wood but they didn't seem to be the kind of marks made by fingernails, even in the midst of a panic frenzy. They felt like they were made by claws or talons. His mind raced with possibilities. He pictured an unconscious child waking in a dark box. At first, he's confused. He tries to move and is hemmed in on all sides. He calls for his mother, but she doesn't answer. The confusion gives way to screaming, and he frantically rakes the lid, fingernails wearing down to bloody stumps. Does somebody hear him? Is he rescued? Chris resolved to get answers. His first stop was the Old Town Pawn Shop. He decided to walk the short distance to the shop and plan his approach, mindful that this could be a police matter. As he stepped inside, the door triggered an old fashioned shopkeep bell. A woman of indeterminate age with glittering eyes gave him a forced smile.
11: Can I help you?
9: Chris introduced himself and explained that Renee had visited two days ago and bought the baby's
11: coffin. The woman gave her name as Amy. I remember selling the coffin, of course, uh, but I didn't sell it to a young woman. I uh, sold it to a young man, a handsome, prepossessing one, I might add.
9: Chris was now more confused than ever.
11: Can you describe this woman? When Chris couldn't, she added, I'm not sure how much help I can give you. Are you sure it was a young woman? Renee can be a man's name, you know.
9: Chris hadn't thought of that, although he wasn't sure how much it mattered. The important fact was that he had a coffin suggesting that some poor child had been buried alive and he needed to get to the bottom of things.
10: Do you know where the coffin came from?
9: Amy described the same series of events Rene had outlined in his email.
11: I know it all sounds a bit suspicious.
10: Did you try calling the company that manufactured the coffin?
11: No. I just wanted to sell the coffin and get rid of it. I wasn't interested in its provenance, you know? Chris thought of a final question before taking his leave.
10: Did you look inside the coffin before you sold it to Rene?
11: I yeah, glanced inside to make sure it was empty, then cleaned the outside in case somebody wanted to use it again. She seemed oblivious to the macabre implications.
9: Chris shuddered and said goodbye. The office was quiet upon his return. He could focus on his next step, which was to call the Casket Company and find out who in the Chicago area bought their coffins. He caught a break when he called the Chicago Casket Company. Despite being in Chicago, most of their business was out of state. There was only one funeral home in Chicago that was a steady customer. Murray Funeral Home. Chris thought about his approach. He didn't want to get too deep into the details over the phone, but he wanted to make sure that he could talk to somebody knowledgeable. Some quick online research revealed that Jameson Murray was the founder and owner. Chris made sure that Mr. Murray would be able to see him that afternoon and drove to the home's Rogers Park address. After giving Murray the background on the baby's coffin, Chris finished with,
10: The coffin was pawned by a man named Reuben Schwartz, but nothing is known about his current whereabouts. If you sold him the coffin... I was hoping you might be able to help me track him down.
9: Jameson Murray was a small, precise man, careful and neat in his appearance, with a prominent mole in the center of his forehead.
1: I know of a Reuben Schwartz who lost a child. I'm sure he's the man you're looking for, but the story is hmm, most bizarre.
9: With Chris's encouragement, he continued...
1: Mr. Schwartz was a single man who lived with a woman named Mackla. Although I didn't know either of them, I heard that Mackla was a woman of, uh, well, a very questionable repute. As a result of Mackla's many infidelities, her relationship with Reuben was a stormy one, to say the least. Unsurprisingly, she became pregnant and supposedly had no clue as to the father's identity but she hadn't been intimate with Reuben for some time. She was certain he would figure out the truth, and fearing how he might react, ran away to stay with a friend until after the birth. Did she get back together with Reuben? Yes, but their relationship was just as stormy as ever. For a while, Mackla was able to convince Reuben he was the father... It was only a matter of time, however, before Reuben figured things out. He confronted Macla. When she was unable to identify the father, he flew into a rage, killing the baby and injuring Macla. The child's body was entrusted to our care.
9: Chris showed Murray a photograph of the casket on his phone.
1: Yes, yes, that's definitely one of ours. Do you know where the child's body was laid to rest? There was a Schwartz family mausoleum in Graceland Cemetery, and the child was interred there. That's kind of odd, isn't it? Didn't Schwartz kill the child because it wasn't his? Quite true. But you must keep in mind that Schwartz himself was not around to attend the funeral. He had, of course, been arrested for the murder and the assault on Makla it was Mackla who attended to the details. I believe she hoped to legitimize the child in death by having him entombed in the Schwartz family crypt.
10: Didn't the Schwartz family object?
1: I'm afraid Mackla was the closest thing Reuben had to a family, and he was in no position to say anything. When you were talking about the child, you said him.
10: I gather Mackla had a boy. Do you know his name?
1: Macla called him Cayman. So what happened to Reuben and Macla? Well, Reuben, of course, was arrested for the murder of the child. He committed suicide while in jail. Macla wanted to change her name and disappear. What were Cayman's injuries? I believe he'd been stabbed several times, but you would have to ask the physician who pronounced him dead. Who was the physician that made the pronouncement? Oh, let me think. It was uh, Dr. Red from St. Francis in Evanston. When a body is entombed like Cayman's was, is it prepared in some way? Embalming is not required in Illinois, and Mackla especially forbade it in Cayman's case. Why was that? Did she say? She said he had suffered enough. And I agreed with her.
10: For two people you didn't know, you certainly have a lot of information about them.
1: Well, as I'm sure you can appreciate, the mortuary business is pretty quiet. When something as dramatic as all of this happens, you tend to keep your ears open and pay more attention.
9: Up to this point, both men had ignored the obvious implications of Chris's questions. How could Ruben have pawned anything given his suicide? More importantly, if Kamen's coffin was the one Rene bought, what the hell happened to Kamen? Or his remains? Trying to be circumspect because the police could still get involved, Chris asked, After
1: Kamen was entombed, were his remains ever disturbed? Not that I know, but something must have happened because you now have the coffin. Or am I missing the point? I don't think so. As I said, I'm just trying to get to the bottom of things. The only suggestion I have is that you talk to Graceland. Perhaps there was a grave robbery.
9: Chris didn't think this was a grave robbery, but he saw no reason to disabuse Murray of that assumption. He said his goodbyes and returned to the office. A voicemail message was waiting for him. He hoped it was not another layoff. It was Julie Thayer from H.R.
4: I called Northwestern and asked whether they have a student named Renee Lilly. I thought that could have been a source of the confusion when you called for an intern. They said they've never had a student by that name or any variation of it. I also called the temp agency again to see whether they had any additional information about the temp who helped me earlier this week, but they had nothing more on her.
9: Chris considered where he stood. Somebody had gone to a lot of trouble to get the baby's coffin in his hands and pique his investigative instincts. This same person or persons had also hidden their identity. He was being manipulated, that much was clear. But for what purpose? The only way to answer the question was to continue with the investigation he had planned, keeping in mind that things may not be as they appeared. He wanted to interview Reuben Schwartz, but his suicide made that impossible. His arrest and incarceration also made it impossible for him to pawn the coffin, which meant somebody had decided to impersonate Schwartz and pawn the coffin, or Mr. Lenhardt had decided to falsify his own pawn records. Neither possibility seemed likely to Chris. Chris felt like his investigation was grinding to a halt. Unless he could locate Makla, he might never find out what happened. Over his years as an investigative journalist, Chris had cultivated numerous contacts in the Chicago Police Department records section. He remembered their names, spouses' names, children's names, birthdays, and holidays. Ordinarily, it would have taken days or weeks to get Reuben Schwartz's arrest records and the incident report on his suicide. After calling in a few favors, he was able to get everything that afternoon. The incident report on the suicide said that Schwartz had been placed on the suicide watch and his belt and shoelaces removed. Despite these precautions, he had been able to kill himself by slamming his head repeatedly into the cell wall. Chris couldn't imagine what must have driven Schwartz so mad. Chilled to the marrow, Chris turned to the police report. The report said that Schwartz had been arrested while covered in blood and still holding the knife he had used. He had been darkly muttering about the baby being a bad seed and a devil. Referring to Makla, he had told the officers to get that whore out of his sight. He had obviously gone insane. The report identified Makla as the complaining witness and next of kin, but a quick telephone call revealed that she had already disconnected the listed number. Chris had no doubt she had moved as well. With no lead on Makla's whereabouts, Chris was down to visiting the mausoleum where the baby had been entombed and interviewing Dr. Red. Because his investigative team was so short-handed, these would have to wait. He needed to get back to the office and act like an editor or he'd be the next one to get laid off. Fortunately, tomorrow was a Friday. He could get an early start on visiting Graceland and St. Francis while still putting in a full day at the office. From his online research, Chris learned that grave robbing was one of the few crimes that was not popular in Chicago. The last reported incident was more than 10 years ago when the manager of a cemetery along with some co-workers dug up the dead and discarded them so their burial plots could be resold. He didn't think that was behind the disturbance of baby Cameron's burial. Making sure that the manager of Graceland had been employed there long enough to be helpful, just as he had done with Jameson Murray. Chris made an appointment to see him early Friday morning. As Chris drove to Graceland, the air turned green with the threat of a violent summer storm. The office and visitor center were just inside the main entrance off West Irving Park Road. Heavy, greasy drops of rain started to fall while Chris hurried inside. Caleb Rotter was the cemetery manager. Tall and imposing, he greeted Chris carefully as though afraid that Chris's investigation would damage the cemetery's sterling reputation. Sensing his concern, Chris filled him in on the details.
10: I'm interested in anything you can tell me about how Cayman's Coffin came to be entombed
12: here and who visited the mausoleum. I don't think I can be much help. We don't keep track of who visits the cemetery, let alone individual mausoleums. The Schwartz mausoleum was built a long time ago. When Cayman's mother said she wanted him entombed in the family mausoleum, no one objected. Because there was plenty of space, we did not press the issue. Was Reuben Schwartz entombed in the mausoleum as well? No. From what you say, it's possible that he didn't leave a will with directions saying he should have been entombed here.
9: Caleb offered to show Chris the mausoleum, and they made their way across the cemetery through the pelting rain. Along the way, Caleb explained that the Schwartz family had chosen an indoor mausoleum. Besides an open space for visitors to pay their respects, the mausoleum had a number of chambers, or crypts, which housed each individual's casket or coffin. An engraved plaque identified the person whose remains resided in each crypt. The Schwartz family mausoleum seemed like a very expensive undertaking, and Caleb confirmed that it had been.
12: The Schwartz family obviously had a lot of money.
9: The mausoleum itself was a brooding, dark granite presence with a dirty, white marble interior. Several generations of Schwartzes were entombed inside. But Cayman's crypt was open and empty.
12: Where's Cayman's coffin? It should be here. We have no record of it being moved.
10: The dust inside the crypt looks like it's been disturbed recently. Has there been any maintenance work in
7: here?
12: Well, because of the COVID outbreak, some of the maintenance staff was out sick, so I hired an independent landscaping firm to help out until the regular staff returned. They sent over three guys last Friday, but they weren't supposed to be working anywhere near here. I'd like to talk to them. Do you have their names? No, I fired them because they didn't seem to know what they were doing. I have the name of their employer somewhere in the office. You know what? I'm going to be late for my next appointment. Can I call you and get the name? Yeah, sure.
9: Chris had been able to get Dr. Red's contact information at St. Francis from Rubid Schwartz's arrest record. The St. Francis Hospital campus was enormous, but Chris eventually found the doctor's office... The doctor was a short, balding man with a port wine stain on the side of his neck. Medical journals were stacked haphazardly throughout his office. He made it clear he was doing Chris a favor. Chris had told him about Cayman's coffin being pawned and his investigation into the circumstances surrounding Cayman's death. But he didn't tell the doctor about the bloody scratches under the coffin lid. For now... Chris was content to leave the doctor with the impression that this was a human interest story.
13: As you know, I was on call when Cayman was brought to the emergency room. He was completely unresponsive, and his vital signs were all but non-existent. He had suffered an enormous blood loss, and his heart stopped while I was examining him. Despite all of our resuscitation efforts, I pronounced him dead within an hour of his arrival. Was there any doubt about the fact of his death? None whatsoever. I prepared a diagram of the child's wounds for the police.
9: The doctor handed it to Chris.
13: I've marked the ones that would have proven fatal. They include being stabbed in the heart.
10: I examined Cayman's coffin and found bloody scratches on the inside of the lid.
13: Can you account for that? The likely explanation is that some third party added those scratches. Maybe the person who pawned it or the pawnbroker. But if you're telling me that Cayman made those scratches, then I'd say it's nothing short of a miracle, because he was most assuredly dead when I last saw him. His body might offer some clue as to what really happened. Has it been recovered?
9: Chris had to admit Cayman's body was still missing.
13: The mother's name was Makla. Do you know what became of her? Well, she told me she was changing her name so she could start over. Do you know her new name? Amy Leonhardt is what she told me.
9: Dumbfounded, Chris left with Red's diagram and headed to the Old Town Pawn Shop. Makla had obviously been the one manipulating him, The morning storm grew more violent as lightning strode the city and thunder echoed down the streets. If Amy Lenhart really was Makla, then her whole story had been a lie. She knew Reuben Schwartz didn't pawn the coffin. The three maintenance guys from Graceland must have stolen the coffin and brought it to her. But why had they done that? What was their connection? Had they tried to pawn it? If so, why lie about it? And where was Cayman's body now? A crime of some sort may have been committed, yet Amy, nay, Makla, had gone out of her way to expose the mystery and interest a newspaper in the details. Why? Chris planned to confront her with what he knew. Depending on her answers, he would call the police. As Chris walked out of the storm into the pawn shop, Amy looked up with the same hard glitter in her eyes he remembered from his last
11: visit. I see somebody's figured out a few things.
10: Where's Cayman's body?
11: But you haven't figured out everything, have you? Is he, of course, alive and well?
10: That's not possible. Cayman's dead and buried.
11: Amy called to the
9: back of the shop.
11: Cayman, dear, why don't you come out and introduce yourself?
9: Chris looked behind Amy toward the rear. A tall, blonde man in his early 30s walked confidently up to Chris and stuck out his hand.
10: I'm Cayman. You can't be Cayman. Kamin died last week as an infant.
9: Chris looked from Amy back to the stranger.
10: You're lying.
9: Kamin shook his head and smiled.
14: I see you're going to require some proof. Fair enough. I'll tell you what happened with my mother as my witness.
9: Chris stared at the man's face. It was as smooth and unlined as a mannequin's, yet he exuded an undeniable charisma. The stranger began his story.
14: It's true that Reuben Schwartz killed me with a knife almost two weeks ago. Mackless saw to my entombment at Graceland. My father decided that I should announce my coming to the world by rising from the dead. "'He sent three rough men to rescue me from the grave and bring me to Makla. "'Because this was a second coming, Father thought a second miracle was in order. "'So he brought me to manhood in a matter of hours.'"
9: Chris was certain the stranger was insane. From the rapt look on Makla's face, Chris could see she was just as insane. They didn't seem dangerous, but he was afraid they could turn violent in a heartbeat. With the storm still raging outside, he wasn't sure how quickly he could get help. He decided to keep the stranger talking while he moved closer to the door.
10: So far, all you've told
14: me is a story.
9: What proof do you have? The stranger smiled again.
14: I see we have a doubting Thomas on our hands. This isn't the first time proof of a resurrection has been required. You have a diagram of my wounds, yes?
9: Chris admitted that he did, wondering how the stranger knew that.
14: Get it out.
9: The stranger unbuttoned his flowing white linen shirt and opened it. Chris saw a number of deep stab wounds.
14: Now compare my wounds with your diagram... They match, do they not?
9: Again, Chris admitted they did.
14: Feel my wounds.
9: He grabbed Chris's hand.
14: Are they not deep enough to kill anyone several times over, let alone a child?
9: When he grabbed Chris, Chris felt a powerful bolt of something like electricity arc up his arm. He could see and feel the stranger's heart beating in his chest. Oh, Oh my God. It was all he could think to say.
14: Exactly.
9: Regaining his senses somewhat, Chris asked, Who are you? What do you want?
14: I've already answered your first question. As for the second, I want you to spread the word of my coming. I want the people of the world to know that I have arrived and will be traveling to Jerusalem where I will reveal myself as the true Messiah, just as I have to you.
1: But why me?
14: We thought you could be counted on to follow the clues MakLA planted during her brief stint at your newspaper. Once you got started, others made sure you stayed on the path that brought you here. Your newspaper is struggling, is it not? It is. We will see to it you have access to many stories that will return your paper to profitability. You will be able to rehire old friends like Mike Dunn. How does that sound? What's the catch? There is no catch. You need only write about what you have seen and learned during your investigation this week that I died and was resurrected.
9: Chris returned to the office and spent the weekend writing his story. The headline read "The Second Coming," with a deck that said, "A Coffin Was His Manger." He included photos of Cayman's wounds and the diagram Dr. Red had supplied. The story made it clear that, for the first time in living memory, a genuine miracle had occurred. He posted the story to the paper's website on Sunday night. Within an hour, he had over a million hits. The newsprint edition of the story also sold out. Soon, flights from all over the world to Jerusalem were booked solid. The rushed nature of his story had left his office in a shambles, and he spent Monday morning cleaning up. On his desk, under some empty pizza boxes, he discovered the coffin that had started everything. Of course, it was no longer just a baby's coffin. It was a holy relic. He picked up the coffin to move it someplace safe and saw charred sawdust outlining where it had lain. He quickly looked underneath the coffin to make sure it hadn't been damaged. Underneath the coffin, some lettering had been burned into the wood. The blackened words said The first seal is broken. The beast is loose. It claims a crown. But wields a sword. Its words are lies spoken. Chris stared open mouthed, uncomprehending. What had he done?
1: In our final tale, we meet a late-night radio host who takes calls from people requiring help with their problems, usually the normal stuff like relationship or career advice. But, in this tale, shared with us by author Alex Woodrow, one caller has a rather unique problem, one the host is completely unequipped to help with. Performing this tale are Kristen DiMercurio, Graham Rowett, Jeff Clement, Matthew Bradford, Nicole Goodnight, and Dan Zapula. So if you need help, listen in. I just hope you don't have the same problem that we learn about in the Grant Marty events.
15: First Exposure There's a convertible in the scrapyard covered in psychology rules and Radio Nil Midnight Sessions stickers. The owner must have been a fan of Grant's show. We settle across the leather back seat with a squeak as the tape starts its loop over again. The top is down, and the stars and heat are competing for attention with Grant's gravel grumble of a voice.
16: Hey, everybody. This is your favorite psych doc with the brain bug laser lock, and you're listening to the Midnight Sessions. Whatever's going on in your life that you need to talk through, Doc Grant is here to hear it. Start punching our number, and I'll catch you on the air right after this song.
0: I broke your bones and buried them, salted the ground and worried them. What if I'd hear them scurry in? What if they'd look for me?
16: Looks like we've got our first caller, and Brian from the sound box is flailing at me like it's some sort of emergency. Hi, Brian. Lay off the coffee for me, will you? All right. Marty from Toronto. You're on the air. Tell me your woes.
3: Listen, Grant. Just so you know, before we start, I have no respect for you.
16: Whoa, buddy. Tell me how you really feel.
3: No. No. Listen, we're, we're both going to have to make concessions we don't want to make. You'll have to concede that you're nothing but a smart hack, and I'll have to concede that you're the only person who can help me right now.
16: Marty, it sounds like you're in a lot of distress. Tell me what's going on.
3: What's going on is I'm... I'm coming loose from my, my own body, man. Literally... And not how kids say literally, but mean whatever. Actually, literally. I don't think I have time to screw around, so let me just ask you for one small favor. One small favor before one big one.
16: What's the small favor, Marty?
3: As long as it doesn't cost you anything to do so, just just assume I'm telling the truth and I know what I'm talking about. I'm too damn tired, and I don't know how much longer I can hold on.
16: All right. You've got it. I'm with you. Yeah? Yeah. Whatever it is, I'm listening. Right. Thanks, man.
3: Here goes then. Something happened uh, about a week ago. I was driving to work, heading towards that awful Bloor viaduct. You know, the one...
16: Sure, over the Don Valley River.
3: That's it. This guy had climbed to the top of the safety fence. It was dark and so desolate. And he's, he's lurching around, trying to trying to make it over. And at first, I, I sped up to reach him.
16: You're talking about Harold James, aren't you? He was on the news. He wasn't trying to do anything, man. He succeeded. If you saw that, it's no surprise you're struggling and need to talk.
3: No man, I I, I mean yeah, but I saw way more than that. I saw his body fall off the bridge, and then I saw the rest of him fall off about three seconds later. It's hard to describe, but you know how sometimes you can tell someone's staring at you? There's a real awareness in there, and you can feel it. It's magnetic. But there isn't one in a plastic dummy, right? So his body was a plastic dummy. And the awareness was coming from behind it. It was so vivid. At first, I didn't even register what was going on. My brain was so sure it was an invisible dude pushing a dummy off the bridge and then jumping off to save it. What kind of first impression is that?
16: Were you tired? Migraines? Had you been drinking?
3: You're already trying to fix the problem. That ain't the problem I need you to fix. I thought we agreed you'd listen.
16: You're right. I'm sorry. I'm listening.
3: I thought it was just a random blip, too. It scared me so bad, though. I turned around and drove back home. But I'll admit it. I was telling myself "Ah, I'm being stupid the whole time. In hindsight, there was already something pushing at the back of my head that night, but we sure love to tell ourselves we're being stupid and there's nothing wrong, don't we?
16: We get a lot of practice at it. Amen, brother. That we do.
3: It's been getting worse. Every day since then. What has? I think whatever he had, I've got it now. I'm becoming just like him.
16: You mean you're experiencing some sort of of out-of-body episode?
3: Except this episode is always playing. It's like I'm driving my own body with fishing line. And the handling is getting shakier and looser each day. Right now, I'm talking to you through a 10-foot meat tube. I tell this body to breathe. Because I know I have to, not because I want to. I can't taste the food I put into it. At night, I I dream. But I'm not even in those dreams. I'm not even a spectator.
16: I'm guessing you don't want me to tell you what plausible things this could be.
3: If I wanted a real therapist, I would have called a real therapist. Ouch. I have called real therapists. And? And? This ain't no disassociation, man. This is not PTSD. I've been to those places before. And this... This is a whole other zip code. Besides, they say I I have to go in for sessions. They say they need to see me.
16: That's what I tell you. You need to talk to someone, in person. This isn't you not getting along with your wife, or you not knowing how to get with the girls... No offense to the rest of the callers, but there is a certain low level of problems we solve here, and this isn't it.
3: I I know, man, but don't you get it? They want to see me. That's how I got this in the first place. I saw a man who had it. I saw a man who was loose to the point of not tolerating it anymore, and, and it cut me loose, too. So that means... If it's option B, and I'm right, if I let anyone see me, they're goners too.
16: You think you're going to give this to someone else?
3: (sighs) I know I will. Even if I'm nuts, what what kind of a man would take that risk?
16: Taking this at face value, assuming everything you're saying is true, how can I help?
3: Do you believe me?
16: Do I believe you feel separated from your own body? Yes, yes. Do I believe it was caused or aggravated by witnessing someone commit suicide? Definitely. Do I believe it's some sort of virus transmitted from person to person by the very act of being observed? No.
3: Would you bet someone's life on it?
16: I don't know, buddy. I guess I'd have to say no.
3: Uh, And that's why I need you. For once... The fact that you're just some guy on the radio telling people what to do with their lives could actually be of some benefit to someone.
16: Just so we're clear, I am a licensed professional. I dispense common sense and mental hygiene advice. And occasionally, when somebody who really needs help comes along, I tell them to go get help, which is what I'm going to be doing with you.
3: So you're not gonna help me? How? Drugs.
16: Whoa, buddy. You know we're on the air, right?
3: You underestimate the magnitude of the nothing I have to lose. Drugs? Just something that'll knock me out hard. Reset my brain. I don't know, man. You're the licensed professional. Something against hallucinations.
16: So you do think you're hallucinating?
3: So that I can prove I'm not... I need something that will kick my ass into Kingdom Come, and when I wake up, I'll barely remember who I am. Something that'll shake me back into myself. Write me a script. Have someone drop it off. I'll tell your sound tech where, pick it up in the middle of the night. Nobody needs to know. Nobody needs to be put in danger.
16: Out of the question.
3: Then that's all we've got to say to each other, isn't it?
16: Wait, Marty. What if I promise it's safe to go see somebody? And he's off. Brian's telling me we haven't got a number. There you have it, folks. Thanks for tuning in. If you're a regular of the Midnight Sessions, you know the drill by now. You can't always help everyone, but it's always worth a try.
15: The tape clicks, then rewinds and it begins again. They didn't used to do that, but we found a way. There's something charming about old technology... It's so easy to reach into. Second exposure. This time it's a tape deck in an overstuffed room with a brown leather armchair and a brown leather couch. What was it about leather back then? Files litter the floor, and there's something growing out of a mug on a mahogany desk. There's a window cracked open, letting in the smell of heat and asphalt. This loop starts just as a cool breeze picks up.
16: Marty, I'm really glad you're back. You're on the air. I don't think I've got a lot of
3: time left. The last three days since I called you have been brutal.
16: I was really hoping you'd gone out to talk to someone.
3: I did, man. I did. I gave up. My head was hurting so bad. My real one, not, not the body one. Moving around the house gives me the wildest motion sickness, like I'm seeing from two places at once, and I can never figure out which angle to react to. I mostly don't look anymore. Can't eat. Just making my mouth move right now feels repulsive. I was desperate, so I caved. What happened? I managed to get some poor asshole to see me in the middle of the night. Mitigate the damage, I thought. He'd be listening to your show, knew all about me. I'm flattered. I wired him a bunch of money in advance. Blocked out my car windows. I did my best, man. I, I, I really tried so hard.
16: I believe you. Take a deep breath, bud.
3: I even got him to send the receptionist away for the night. It was all going fine. Yeah? I saw it. The moment I walked into his office. The moment he clapped eyes on me. It's like he jumped out of his own skin. He tried to keep it together, but put up a fight. Sat me down, started asking me questions. But every time I looked at him, his eyes were bulging out and the top of his lip was drenched. He excused himself to go to the bathroom. I heard him throw up, and man, I remember what that felt like. The first days, he was in there for minutes,
16: and I just, I just left. Do you know if anything happened to him?
3: Grant, man, if I didn't know any better, I'd say it almost sounds like you believed me. Which would be great, because I think there's more to it. And it'll only get weirder.
16: Hold on. Why don't we check on him? Maybe he's right there, reading the paper. Maybe he's listening.
3: I already know the answer, but... sure.
16: All right, everybody. Thanks for staying tuned in. We're going to take a minute to get the phone number of Marty's therapist and call him up. We'll be right back as soon as we're connected.
12: It's in the trees and above in the clouds Getting hungry, getting wicked, getting loud My elemental louse I've moved out of again It's in the corners of this love and all around
16: Marty, you still on the line?
3: I'm here. Did he answer?
16: Yeah. He didn't want to talk to us. I'm sorry, buddy.
3: I'm not surprised I didn't want to talk to anyone for days either What did he say?
16: I'll be honest with you He didn't sound so good Hang on Marty Brian says we've got another call And he really wants me to hear this Uh, We've got Kyle from Oklahoma Kyle, you're live
3: Hi, I just wanted to tell Marty that I believe him I'm sick too I know exactly what he's been describing And I believe him It's killing me I don't know how we could stand it for so long.
16: When did this start, Kyle?
3: Uh, when I first heard you guys but but I don't blame you. I, I know it's not you. you know it, it's something else. <clears throat> that's that's all I wanted to say. I believe you and I don't blame you.
16: Kyle? Looks like Kyle's out, folks. Marty, did you get that?
3: Yeah I Marty? Hey uh, Grant, how have you been? Fine. And the
16: truth, now. The truth is, my head's been killing me. There's a hole in the back of my skull that no amount of booze is shaking loose. That's how it started for me. I'm praying really hard to whatever's out there that it's some new virus and you're a lonely weirdo looking for notoriety.
3: Holy shit. Maybe I gave it to you, too. And Kyle. What about your tech? Um, what was his name in the, in the sound booth? Brian. Does Brian have it too?
16: He's shaking his head. Weren't you throwing up when I came in, buddy? Saying he's hungover. Wait, so you do feel... Yeah, Marty, I think that might be a yes. What the hell is going on?
3: Maybe I was wrong.
16: If this is some sort of mass hallucination, it's the worst trip I've ever had. (laughs) Whoever cooked this batch can take it right back.
3: Maybe you don't need to see it to catch it. Maybe hearing about it is enough to crack us open.
16: Shit, man. We're on the air.
3: God, help me. you know what's worse?
16: There's worse?
3: I think. I think I can feel something moving into what I'm moving out of.
15: There's a scrabbling clipped noise at the end of this loop that we've always wondered about. Who reached for the off button? Was it Grant? Or Brian? Maybe one of those details that will be lost to history forever. Final exposure. The last stop is a quick one but the space is spectacular. It's some sort of improvised transmitter atop a building tall enough to see the ruins of downtown. We're both eager to hear it and sad that the experience is nearly over. This short loop plays with no audible barrier between the end and the start, over and over. Funnily enough, we weren't the ones who rigged this one.
16: This is Doc Grant, and you're listening to the final... Radio Nil, Midnight Session. I don't know if I'm doing more harm than good, but I've got to try one last thing. If you're just tuning in for the very first time, tune out right now. Just do it. Your life may be in danger. But if you're a Midnight Session fan, then you're already screwed anyway. You may as well keep listening. Do not, under any circumstances, let anyone hear what happened. Do not record this message. If you have any recordings of our encounter with Marty, burn them. If you've heard them, you may be infected too. Look for the symptoms and isolate yourself. Symptoms include an ache at the back of the skull, a pressure, a a pull, a hollow space between you and the skin on the front of your body, the inexplicable feeling that your body is watching you. There'd be a clear trigger moment when you first saw someone who was infected or heard them describe their condition. The knowing alone could cause a crack, and entropy only goes one way. That's all they need. A tiny crack where they can apply leverage. They. There's a they. We figured it out. Horror vacui. Nature abhors a vacuum. Whatever new spaces are being made, are being filled. And we don't know by what, by whom. Whatever's coming, it's coming. I don't know if there's any stopping it, but maybe we can slow the spread until someone figures something out. All they have to do is fix it without ever seeing it or hearing about it.
13: Easy.
15: That's the end of it. It's a beautiful thing. In many ways, more violent than the violet of the sunrise. We preserve these loops with reverence. It's important to remember one's history. The sacrifices and losses. Where we come from. How we got here. It's important to remember that everything is only a loop.
1: creative reason media the musical score was composed by brandon boone our production team is phil Mykolski, jeff clement and jesse cornett our creative content manager is olivia white our editor-in-chief is jessica mcavoy please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening to the No Sleep Files, and for being a supportive Season Pass member. This audio program is copyright 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors.